0: and uh, all the things that pertain to a Christian attitude in going into the Passover. And it seems that that examination probably should begin on the first day of the first month. That gives us 14 days of actually examining ourselves and seeing what, uh, what we need to change and maybe adjust our attitudes and so on. And that's really one reason I started into the book of John when I did, is that it's all about Christ and the things that he did in his life in preparation for that final Passover where he actually gave himself. So we need to think very seriously and deeply about about him and about where we fit in the, the scheme of things. So we'll see you Thursday night at 7.30 then. Now let's get back to the book of John. We finished chapter 4 last time. And uh, I'll pick it up at the beginning of chapter 5. After this was a feast of the Jews, and Emmanuel went up to Jerusalem. They don't call it God's feast in some places here. And I think partly because the Jews did not keep the Passover on the correct day. They opted for the 15th instead of the 14th, as Exodus clearly says and is shown through the Bible, and Christ himself keeping it on the 14th, and we're to do as he did. Uh, uh, They then had it on the 15th that very year. So in a sense it was the Jews' feast, and of course the Jews were not following God. Uh, Christ made it very clear to the Pharisees and Sadducees and others that They were not worshiping God, they were worshiping Satan, even though they thought they were worshiping God. So, they were conducting the feast, but it truly wasn't God's feast, since they weren't connected with God. That should tell us that there's a great danger for any of us to say that we worship God, and our conduct is not following godly ways. So, you can give lip service to the commandments, to the Bible, but unless you are worshiping God in spirit and in truth, then He says you, His servant, you are to whom you obey. So if we if we let Satan influences and our human nature influences, and our conduct is more earthy and more carnal and more human uh, instead of godly, then He says we're actually worshiping either self or Satan or both. Well, that's idolatry. So we, we have to be careful. And I think the very way that they put this indicates that. Verse 2, Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Uh, the New Testament word apparently indicates mercy there. The uh, Old Testament word Bethesda, I forget now exactly. I looked it up. Uh, it was uh, it was not a, a favorable term. I can't quite say it at this point. But in any case, this was a place where a miracle happened uh, occasionally. We don't know how often, but quite often. Five porches is kind of interesting. I don't know why why it was designed that way. But five in the Bible is the word for, or the number for grace. And uh, there people were healed, as we'll see in a moment, and received grace and mercy from God, uh, even though they did not really deserve it, uh, but it happened anyway. So what about the world today? It certainly doesn't deserve the grace of God. Neither do you and neither do I, for that matter, Uh, but it is pardon that is given in an unmerited fashion. I've wondered about the meaning of this and why God did this, but Christ was coming, and he was going to offer grace through his life and through his sacrifice to a world that didn't deserve it. So maybe God caused this miracle that occurred at this particular pool uh, as a precursor or a forerunner, of the grace that Christ would come to extend. And he did make a point of going to this place. So it does have something to do with his ministry and his purpose here. Uh, He could have ignored it, but he didn't. And while he was there, he performed a miracle. Let's read on about it. Verse 3, And these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, of crippled, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, or stirred it up. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So people just lined up around it and tried to be the first in. Didn't, he uh, didn't extend it to everybody that was there, but just to one person at a time. Interesting. Uh, is, pers- is salvation a very personal thing? Is forgiveness a personal thing? Uh, just because you happen to be in, let's say, the church of God, are you automatically included in the kingdom of God or place of safety or or uh, protection or anything else? No. It's an individual matter. And Christ even said that we should pray diligently that we be accounted worthy to escape these horrible things that are coming because he says he's going to protect his church, but not every individual in it. So uh, salvation and mercy from God is a very, very personal one-on-one situation. And that's kind of the way this was uh, as well, just one person at a time. Verse 5, "...and a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty-eight years." I don't know whether he'd been coming to that pool every day for 38 whole years or not, or when he started, or even when this miracle started, or how how long it had been going on. We don't have those details. But when Emmanuel saw him lying there, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said to him, "'Will you be made whole?' The impotent man answered him, "'Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool.' But while I am coming, another steps down before me. So his situation was such that uh, he, he couldn't get up and couldn't move fast. So people got there ahead of him. He'd been waiting apparently for a long time. It says this happened by season or by a, on a, a, pair of a fairly regular basis apparently. Now whether that was once a day or once a week, it, it really doesn't say. It's kind of like Old Faithful up in Yellowstone. It, it erupts on a, a sequence, a timed thing, for the most part. And maybe this was the same way. But at any rate, however long he had been coming, he had not been able to get there first in all that time. I don't know whether it was like a swimming pool that was straight down or whether you had to walk down a slope to get to it. You'd think he'd have just laid on the side and it just fallen in, <laughs> but apparently it wasn't quite that easy to do. <clears throat> anyway, verse 8, Emmanuel said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Well that's, that's notated because it raised a furor Uh The Jews, therefore, said to him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. I don't imagine his bed amounted to a whole lot. It certainly wasn't a king-sized mattress with the box springs. and Just a little something he was laying on there. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said to me, Take up your bed and walk. (laughs) What am I going to do? This guy heals me, and he said to pick up my bed... He just healed me, so I picked up my bed. Then asked him, What man is that which said to you, Take up your bed and walk? They wanted to get to the source of this and, and accuse whoever had said it of breaking the Sabbath. And he that was healed didn't know who it was, for Emmanuel had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. So he slipped away, I didn't want the guy to know at that point who it was that had healed him. He left it a mystery, but that didn't stay that way. Verse 14, Afterward, Emmanuel found himself in the temple and said to him, Behold, you are made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto you. So, healing is a forgiveness of sin. Physical healing and even spiritual healing is a forgiveness of sin uh, of some kind. Why are we sick? Well, generations of people have broken laws of health, and we ourselves have broken laws of health. And God says if he heals us, then we have a responsibility not to sin anymore. We have to change our habits, for instance, Uh, You know, what made you sick? Well, we look at the diet we have today and the chemicals we ingest and the medicines we take and all the different things that modern life has put upon us and the pollutions in the air and everywhere else are all a result of breaking the laws of nature. And we become sick. Well, we have a very, very strong responsibility before God... That if we are healed, we don't do what we've been doing, that we change. And Christ made that very clear to this man. (laughs) Uh, So he told him to sin no more, unless you come down with something even worse. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Emmanuel which had made him whole. So he went and reported who had done it. Now they were armed. Therefore did the Jews persecute Emmanuel and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So they accused him of breaking the Sabbath and they conferred the death penalty on him and actually sought to kill him. That's pretty severe judgment. But Emmanuel answered them, "My father works here too and I work." So The work of God, and doing a work of God, if it indeed be that, is okay on the Sabbath day. We'll have a little bit later on, he explains what the work of God is, in uh, so many words. So, spiritual work on the Sabbath is okay. Therefore the Jews sought more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making him equal with God. Now, there's something that will set people off. Uh, When we say we were created to become God, to be part of the God family, uh, the the whole so-called Christian world just simply doesn't believe that. The Catholics have what they call the beatific vision, and uh, no matter how much you've sinned here, if your relatives, after you die, keep paying, you get a little clearer view of God. Uh, at first, you get a very, very blurry uh, view, and as as your friends and relatives pay into the Catholic Church, uh, God gives you a little bit better view of Him. Now, that'd be a that'd be a miserable existence, wouldn't it? It's like looking into a, a warped mirror of some kind, <clears throat> and then doing that eternally and hoping hoping your relatives down here keep paying so you get a clearer view. No. God created us to be part of His family. And the world just simply cannot grasp or understand that. They to think it's blasphemy, but it's not. Verse 19, Then answer, Emmanuel, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself but what he sees the Father do. So he wasn't there to do his own thing. He wasn't there to make some new rules or to uh, set up different administrative guidelines, but he could only do what the Father does and what he had seen the Father do. For what things soever he does, these also does the Son likewise. And then what does he tell us? That we're to do what he does, to follow in his steps, uh, to walk as he walked, to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So we are only allowed to do what Christ did, even as he was only allowed to do what he saw his father do. We need to ask ourselves that question quite frequently Is this what Christ would do? Is this what he did? Is what I am thinking or about to do something Christ and the Father would do? We would pull ourselves up short quite a bit if we uh, monitor ourselves as closely as we ought to be. If you're to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, (coughs) excuse me, that means you never let up because your thoughts continue. They go on day in and day out, minute after minute, second after second, and you need to be monitoring those to be sure they're correct, and they're only according to what the Father and the Son think and do. Uh, For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So these were some of his beginning miracles and they were going to be more and more and stronger and even to the raising of the dead. And that's that makes you marvel. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom he will. So he was referring to resurrection here and he did with Lazarus and and so on. For the Father judges no man but has committed all judgment to the Son. We have to realize that Christ is the one who makes the final judgment on us and on our salvation because the Father has given over to Him making those judgments and once He has judged us to be qualified or accepted, let's say, into the kingdom of God, He will present our names to the Father and say these are the ones I've decided will be my bride. So he gets to pick his own bride. The father doesn't do it for him. So all judgment is given to him. That all men should honor the son even as they honor the father. So we honor God above all and we honor his son in that sense above all as well. Because they are one, while they be separate beings, they are one and the same in terms of being God. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which has sent him. Now that became very important, and he goes into it here a little bit more, uh, and told them, "If if you don't honor me, you're not honoring the Father either. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Now, does that mean we're already changed? No, we're still human. Uh, we, we still are not spirit, or we would be spirit. But We're still human. But do we have His life in us through the Holy Spirit? Yes, we do. And are we therefore on target for, or on the path to, eternal life? God speaks of those things that are not as if they already were. So once we get on that path, He expects us to finish the job. He expects us to inherit eternal life. Uh, He's not going to keep us from it. Only we ourselves. The, The Protestant world uses the terms, well, we're saved after they're baptized or after they accept the Lord in whatever form they do it. No, you're not saved. Uh, You are in the process of salvation or being saved. You're not saved ultimately until you are changed into spirit. So we can say we're begotten. I think that's a better term for us to use than say I'm saved uh, because you're not yet fully saved. Uh, Paul even said that he had to be careful lest after he had preached to others he himself become a castaway. So even though he was an apostle, he realized he could turn from God and be lost. So he was not in that sense fully saved. He was in the process of salvation. And God is going to honor that process and we are going to be there unless we turn aside or don't live up to what our part of it is. Because we can certainly be lost. So we're not eternally saved. Let's put it that way. We're in a a saved condition or a condition of grace. Saved from what? Death. Well, if our sins are forgiven, then we're saved from the death penalty. Uh, If we continue to sin, then that grace or that unmerited pardon is removed and we will die for our own sins. So salvation is a process. It's not a one-and-done deal when you get baptized or accept the name of Jesus, as they say. Because he says, only those who obey will be in the kingdom of God. Not just the hearers, but the doers will be saved. And that is a process that we go through day by day to see if we will be hearers or doers. And if we're just hearers, then we're like the Pharisees. Well, they didn't even hear Christ and didn't listen to what he had to say. Uh, Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. So what he was offering were the words of life. Uh, The Holy Spirit had not yet been given in the way that it was at Acts 2, but he was there already preaching about it, as had John the Baptist. So, Life, or the possibility of life, was already being given them. You know, they'd not had that up until this point. Even in the Old Testament, that covenant was of physical life and blessing. It was not of eternal life. Now, God let a few of the patriarchs in on what he planned to do, and they understood spiritual things, at least to some degree. David, Moses, Abraham, and so on understood a certain amount. Uh, And God accounted that as righteousness for the future because they were willing to obey and they had the spirit and attitude of obedience. Uh, But he says that there's a time when all that are in the graves are going to be resurrected. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so is he given to the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now there's one of the reasons, and perhaps the main reason, that the Father himself does not make the final judgment on you and me. Partially because that's to be his bride, and he wants to select who all the members of that will be, the 144,000. But also, since he had come here to live a human life, he knew firsthand in a way that perhaps even the father could not totally comprehend uh, what being a human being really is now of course, the father had have having planned man uh, knew what human nature was, and he saw evidence the bitter, angry uh spirit and attitude of Satan, so he knew. But first-hand experience is something else. Uh, just like we have the expression, don't judge somebody who walked a mile in their moccasins. You don't know where they've been or what they've gone through or what has shaped them to be as they are. And it's easy to criticize and say, well, you're such and such. Well, what did they go through to make them the way that they are? So we need compassion and a readiness to show mercy and forgiveness instead of judgment. So... It says, because he is the Son of Man. He was born to a woman and had some insight there that was important and is important in judging us. Verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Uh, he doesn't explain in detail here, but he's talking about different, the different resurrections that will occur so that all will have opportunity. There is that first resurrection of the 144,000 when Christ returns uh, to claim his bride. And it says in Revelation 20, The rest of the dead live not till the thousand years were finished. So a general resurrection, the rest of the dead, are resurrected at the end of the thousand years, where they will have a period of judgment. Uh, understanding the truth that they do not now understand or have not in whatever period of time they lived on this earth. And then, of course, the third resurrection of those who are going into a lake of fire. So, in their order, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, all will hear his voice. They won't all at the moment he comes back the first time, but in their order. Verse 29, and shall come forth they that have done good to the resurrection of life, that would be those in the first resurrection, and they that have done evil to a resurrection of damnation, or a crisis or turning point is more a way of putting that. Those who come up in the second resurrection at the end of the thousand years will not have their judgment uh, made as yet. Many of them were babies. Many of them lived their whole life and never understood anything about God. Many of them are are around the continents on earth, don't know anything about God or the Bible, or, or, or haven't throughout the centuries and millenniums. So you can't resurrect them to damnation. They have to be given a period of time, which is represented by the last great day of the feast, to know the truth and show whether they will follow it or not. And then they will be given life or they will be given death. So what he's saying there is a very, very brief summary, and it makes it sound like, if you don't understand other scriptures, that when Christ returns, everyone's resurrected, and these go to heaven, and these go to hell, as the Protestants would say. But that's not the way it is. Everybody has to have a period of judgment, a chance at salvation. Verse 30, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. So he was ever mindful of the spirit and attitude of the Father, and not giving in to the spirit and attitude of the flesh, uh, because it was a constant temptation that was before him every day. So here's a reminder he was giving himself, and a reminder for us, about whose judgment we need to be aware of. Uh, Verse 31, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. You know, we, we could be prejudiced toward ourselves. We have deceitful, desperately wicked minds by nature. So, we cannot judge ourselves. We can't really bear witness of ourselves, because... We aren't honest even with ourselves. We are not capable of being totally honest among ourselves or about ourselves. We are, by our very nature, prejudiced toward self, are we not? So he says, there is another that bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Uh, you sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. So here was John, who was uh, preaching about Christ and that He was coming, and John had the witness of Scripture, and he gave a true witness of what Emmanuel would be. So he was, in that sense, not prejudiced. He was just saying what the Scripture said, and the Scriptures gave the truth. So his witness was correct. Christ was saying, "We we simply cannot." depend upon our own judgment of ourselves. God looks on the heart, and sometimes we even deceive ourselves about our own motivations. Now, he didn't, so he looked to John, and he looked to the Father, primarily the Father. He said, But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. So, His testimony was coming directly from the Father, and salvation would be offered through Him. So the things He was saying about Himself, and that He was the Son of God, were letting these people know that if they wanted salvation, they had to come through Him. Christ faced a burden there in His first tenure on this earth. Uh, of convincing people that he truly was the Son of God. Uh, They didn't want to believe it. They didn't grasp it. Even though he did all kinds of miracles in front of these Pharisees, uh, they just simply did not want to believe he was the Son of God. Now, he's facing the same burden of proof when he returns the second time. And he is going to cause so much war and misery and suffering uh, and allow Satan to do most of it. And even he himself will bring a sword dipped in blood when he returns uh, as king of kings and lord of lords with his bride. So this world has to be humbled. People have to come up, a lot of them in the second resurrection, having been killed having lived a miserable life on this earth, and then be taught the truth. but what does, I've quoted it many times, what does Ezekiel, for instance, say? He gives all these horrible prophecies that are going to occur here at the end time, and he says, "...and they will know that I am the Lord." So, these people did not know and would not accept that he was the Lord... And here at the end time, he's going to have the same situation. They will not accept. Now, what he did not do the first time was force it on them, did he? He told them sometimes in very, very plain language, but he did not make them bow and worship him at that time. He came as a witness of the Father, as the Son of God and Son of Man, and he did a lot of miracles to show in a positive way who he was and that what can come from God is blessing. But they refused. And we know he disfellowship the Jews until they accept the ministry that he has sent and him, which they have not done to this day. They're still disfellowshipped, the Jews are. They still don't worship the Father or the Son. So he has, this next time he comes, uh, they will either bow or they will die. And most will die. The second resurrection will have a different attitude. he will get his point across, but it's going to be very, very painful for the residents of this earth. So he says, You sent to John, and he bore witness of the truth, but I received not testimony from man. His came from above uh, and brought salvation, or opportunity of it, with him. He was a burning and a shining light, speaking of John the Baptist, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his life. So they, they liked some of the things John the Baptist was teaching. They accepted him to some degree, but he didn't claim to be the Son of God either. And when the Son of God did come, he was rejected. He didn't go along with their way of keeping the Sabbath. He didn't go along with a lot of things they taught. Verse 36, But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So, he was not a witness of himself, but the miracles that God allowed him to do and caused him to do, Were witness that the Father had sent him because that kind of miracle simply did not come except from God. So, what he gave was a very, very positive way of showing who he was uh, and gave them ample opportunity to accept him, which they would not do. Now, he's going to do some things uh, very shortly, he's going to do some signs and wonders some incredible healings. He's going to give a small remnant of faithful people blessings like people on this earth since Adam and Eve have not seen. And he's going to have two men go preach to the world that that witness of those healings and of the good things from God could be theirs if they would but repent. So he's going to send them to do what he himself in his first time on the earth was doing and the same thing in that sense that John the Baptist was doing, speaking of God and who it is that can do good Uh, but the world will reject that remnant of faithful people and they will reject those two uh, prophets of God who will be trying to get across to them that God is good and you don't have to die but They are going to die. They will not repent. So God will finish the thing this time. But he will give a positive example and an opportunity. He's not going to kill them all before he warns them. This nation's already had some warning through the World Tomorrow broadcast and so on, and didn't pay any attention. Now we're decades removed from that, and we're just getting worse and worse. Uh, Verse 37 And the Father Himself, which has sent me, has borne witness of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His shape. Now there's a positive statement there or a proof that no one in the Old Testament ever saw the shape, even or had contact with God the Father. All the instances where the Lord appeared. In the Old Testament, it was Christ who appeared as Melchizedek, who was the Lord of hosts. He was the one who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the one who appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden. So all appearances that Christ made with mankind uh, in the Old Testament were indeed himself, not the Father. And you have not his word abiding in you, for whom he has sent him you believe not. So well, they thought they were worshiping the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he tells them, no, you're not, because I came from him, and you don't accept me. So if you didn't accept Christ, you weren't accepting the father. You can't do one without the other, and you can't separate them. So, uh, you don't believe the father. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. So he's saying, if you'll read the scriptures, they only had the Old Testament at that point, obviously. And he said that he was spoken of in the Old Testament, and he was very, very frequently. And in fact, he was the one that was inspiring it to be written, and all the talk in there about the Lord and so on were speaking of Christ for the most part. The father is referred to, but uh, never seen, and has has kept his distance. Verse 40, and you will not come to me that you might have life. So he says, in another place, he's the door. He's the only way whereby we can have eternal life. Uh, And the door to the father is through the son. So if they don't accept him, they can't have eternal life. You can't bypass Christ which they were trying to do, and the Jews are still, to this day, bypassing Christ, or trying to. They're not getting anywhere. Uh, There are a few Messianic Jews, but they're not following the truth of the Bible either, so they're not any more righteous in that sense than the ones that don't accept Christ, because the Messianics don't accept the words of Christ. And if you don't accept His Word, you don't accept Him. Why is it we have so many people in the church who are looking to the Jews for answers. (laughs) The Jews don't have any answers. The Scriptures are so very plain about that. Uh, Verse 41, I receive not honor from men. His honor came from His Father in heaven. But I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. They were religious, weren't they? We have a lot of people today that are religious but is that the love of God, or is that just human emotion? It's just human emotion, because they do not have the love of the Father. If you don't obey God, He doesn't give you, you're not motivated by His love, which is pure. Most of our human emotion has some kind of a human motivation behind it. We, we like to be liked, and we like to like people so they will like us, and uh, it gets all snarly in there about human nature and why we... Like or love people, uh, and people think they have the love of God, but unless you obey Him, you don't. What is love? This is love that you keep the commandments. John said that himself back in 1 John 5 3. This is the love of God that you keep the commandments. These Pharisees weren't keeping the commandments, and the whole Protestant world says the commandments are done away with. So they're not keeping the commandments. Therefore, they do not have the love of God. Now, they'd argue with me, but I'm just simply quoting Scripture here. That love that the Protestants show to each other is not God's love. It's simply human emotion. The Scriptures prove that. God gives His Spirit to them that obey, to no one else, just them that obey. And if you say the commandments are done away, you're not obeying them, obviously, And therefore, you don't have God's Spirit. People think they have God's Spirit, but that's not what it is. We need to let God define what a Christian is, not ourselves. Let's see. Uh, Verse 43, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. Well, God's name uh, includes what he is, who he is. He has laws. He follows his own code of conduct. Now, his his nature and his spirit is such that he would never break any of the commandments he's given us. By nature, uh, we break God's commandments. We break them, not keep them, by nature. We are, we are of a different nature than God is. Verse 44, How can you believe which receives honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? How can we have a mutual admiration society and pat each other on the back and tell each other what good Christians we are and we never look to God for honor? That's where honor has to come from. He's the one that can confer eternal life or eternal death. Uh, he's the one that we need to honor. Uh, honor your father and your mother. Uh, well, there's the father in heaven and our mother of the church. On a spiritual basis, we have to honor both. But primarily the father above the mother. I've had somebody not too long ago tell me, well, you can't come between me and God. We can't have a hierarchical government. You're placing yourself between me and God, and you can't do that. Brethren, I have never said that. And a hierarchical government does not put the ministry between you and God. Now, God put the ministry there in order, first apostles, then prophets, and so on, in descending order of office. And... They are not there to be in an organizational form like a corporation would make so that it's the father and then the son and then an apostle and then a prophet and go through all those and then down to you and you have to go through all those ministers and offices to get to God. That's not the way it works. Now, that's the way people picture it and why they tell me what they tell me. That I'm trying to come between them and God. No, I am not. What is a mother's job? A mother is to point her children to their father. She doesn't come between the father. They have direct access. When daddy comes home from work, do they have to ask mom's permission to go give him a hug? Do they have to ask mom's permission to speak to dad? No. They hear him coming in the front door, and they run, jump in his arms, and he talks to them and hugs them and kisses them. They have direct access to their father. And so does a Christian. When the veil of the temple was rent in twain when Christ died, God opened the capacity of us going directly to God. Now, in the Old Testament, the high priest could only go in the Holy of Holies once a year and people did not have direct access to God. But when he died and that veil was rent, it gave every Christian direct access to God. That doesn't mean that we can't have and shouldn't have hierarchical government. The church, the mother, is there to point us to the Father and not to impede our access to the Father But what does a mother do? It's her job to be at home, keeper of the family, teaching the children obedience and morality, and she is the keeper to help those children be able to honor and respect their father and to be obedient children to the father. Now, wasn't Christ here to teach us obedience to the father? Did he not create the church to be there to teach us the truth, to teach us to go to the Father? You don't pray to a priest, you pray to the Father through the Son. The ministry and the organizational chart in that sense is to decide. You have direct access at any time. The ministry is as a mother to teach you more about the Father, to teach you how to serve the Father to teach you how to serve the other part of the God family, the son who's to be your husband. That's their job. But it doesn't get in the way of hierarchy. The the ministry is there to teach the children truth. Somebody says, well, we're all apostles. That means one sin. No, it does not. That's ridiculous. He put the ministry there. The first Corinthians 12 talks about the body. And how he put each in the body as he chose to do. Feet and toes and fingers and hands and spleens and livers and whatever. But he set the ministry there to give direction and to be physically the head. Now Christ is the spiritual head, no question. But using the body as a physical analogy, he put the ministry there to guide and direct and help the rest of the body do what it's supposed to do to cause it to grow and conform to God. So, he put them there in leadership positions, and they are, in that sense, physically the heads of the church. Now, other parts of the body, God puts there as he wishes. So, we are here as a ministry to direct people to the Father, not to get between. People misunderstand what hierarchy means. And they come up with malarkey, which is uh democracy, or the people rule, or, or there's no place in the Bible anywhere where people were given a vote on what we do. In fact, Exodus 23, 2, I believe that's the correct verse, says a mob is to do nothing. Well, what is a democracy? A, a true democracy where you get the vote of the people is a majority. And a mob and a majority are synonyms. You're not ruled by the body. Do, do your fingers and toes tell you what tell your mind what to do? Or does your mind tell your fingers and toes what to do? Mobocracy is not a form of God's government. There is no vote of the people anywhere in the Scripture on any subject, doctrine or anything else. And the Scriptures are very clear on that. Anyway, let's not go too far there. We're here talking about Christ, but we've got to worship Him in truth and in spirit. And we can't deny His words about our government. They didn't have the love of God. And neither the people who don't obey every word of God, Matthew 4.4 4, and Luke 4.4, 4, live by every word of God. Okay, so us honoring ourselves doesn't help anything. We need honor from God, and that comes through obedience to Him. Verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. Now, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but here he's telling them the one they look to the most, sometimes it was Abraham, but often to Moses. Moses the one they looked to the most, Moses, was their accuser. Now, how can that be? How did Moses accuse these Pharisees? For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Now, when when Moses wrote in those first five books of the Bible about the Lord, uh, he was talking about Christ. So, all the references that Moses made of the future, and even of event, events that were happening then had to do with Christ himself. He was the God of the Old Testament. So he says, <laughs> you know, the law that Moses gave through Christ, or Christ gave through Moses, more accurately, uh, accused them, because they wouldn't follow it. So Moses, in that sense, was their accuser. But if you believe not his writings... How shall you believe my words? He was talking about me, Christ said. You, didn't believe, you don't believe me now, so you don't believe the things that he wrote about me. He made it very, very clear that the words written in this book are the words to live by, and if we do not follow them, uh, we're in trouble. It's like, like one minister said some years back, you have to learn to think above the the Word. Above the Bible, above Scripture, I think is the word he used. You have to learn to think above Scripture. We are utterly incapable of that. I hope we realize that. I can't even think up to Scripture, much less above it. And the, the Scripture is the Word of God. There is nothing higher in form on this earth in this word now i understand that there's some mistranslations there are a few things that have been added and god warns about that so we have to understand that we have to research sometimes and be careful to get the right translation and even the right interpretation uh, so the bible is not in that sense perfect uh, because well look at look at the new testament uh, there were words that had different meanings in 1611 when it was translated than they have today. Uh, when they when it says, let your conversation be such and such in the King James, a conversation back then had to do with the things you did, your conduct. So the word has changed. Today, conversation is just talk, but the modern word is conduct, is what he was talking about. So that's a poor translation based on today's English. So we have to understand that God breathed the words in the Bible, but there have been translations and errors made sense, and we have to be cognizant of that. But I'll tell you this, when anyone attacks this scripture, I've been studying it now most of my life off and on. And there's not a place I can go to in this book where it contradicts itself. Out of 66 books and all those different authors, it's the same story wherever you go. And it all fits together wherever you go. And if there's a mistranslation that seems to be a contradiction, you can look it up in the Hebrew or the Greek and you can fix it because it all does fit together properly translated and properly understood. Well, let's see. Chapter 6 is a long one. I don't know that we necessarily need to dive into that. It's after 2 and my voice is getting tight again. I don't know what it is lately. It seems like nearly an hour is about all I can do and I begin to get strained. So let's just stop there.